All right, so if you're watching this, uh, you're most likely at home um, enjoying the snow being snowed in. The snow is actually falling outside. The snowpocalypse is upon us. Uh, I'm Rayshawn. I'll be continuing on in our series in Mark's Gospel um, today, and we'll be in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 uh, through 31. Um, got the fire going, and uh, I always wanted to be a TV preacher. This looks like this will probably be the closest I'll get to it, but uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and read uh, read this ver these verses in Mark's gospel and uh, just talk about this text a little bit. So Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for your words. Um, Lord, we thank you for even gathering us at, at, in our homes throughout the city. Uh, as we're snowed in, uh, give us just time to enjoy spending with our families, uh, to enjoy just reading, uh, praying, worshiping together um, in our homes. And, and Lord, we ask that, that your word would just go forth, that it would accomplish what you sent it to do. Um, remind us, refresh us of your gospel and what you've done for us through Jesus in our place for our sins. And um, Lord, may your words go forth and not mine. May your thoughts go forth. Uh, may you be made much of. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So I've got the fire going already and, you know, kind of the artificial fire, and now I'm going to sing to you. But I'm just joking. I'm not really going to sing, but I certainly definitely want to start this off with some, some song lyrics. Uh, it comes from a song called What Have We Done? Uh, you might have heard it in our Good Friday service or by a group called Kane's Kaleidoscope. Uh, the lyrics start off like this on one of the verses. Oh, my soul. Oh, my Jesus. Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Man, the first time I heard the lyrics of this song, I was honestly a little taken back. Jolted, you could even say. Something just seemed wrong with those lyrics. I mean, it was during Good Friday service, so if you know and you're familiar with how we do things, the lights are low, it's quiet, uh, the song begins to play, uh, and it just felt like a shot to the stomach. I mean, when you hear those words, I'd have done it for less. I mean, for me, I was just beginning to think, no, not me, less? Of course not. And just that quick, catching myself, I've got what psychologists call that won't happen to me syndrome. And so you're familiar with that, what that is, right? It's sort of like that amnesia that you, that you get as a kid when you get into trouble and you get asked about it. It's not really real, we could say, but it's a, it's a condition that's certainly present when certain circumstances arise. And so we say that won't happen to me. It's when you're presented with some kind of threat or when you hear the troubling news that someone has done something uh, like a moral failure or something awful or a heinous crime or you hear about some sort of negative health risk. And so if you're honest, in the back of your mind or in the crevices of your being, you just start thinking to yourself, well, I'm smart enough to, pre to prevent that from happening. I can avoid that sort of problem. Or, or maybe you even start to reason as to why when things happen like that to someone else, that they must be due to something related to them. Maybe they, they did have that one personality flaw. They, they did always have a rocky relationship. They never seemed to get that under control. 
And so if we're honest, we don't want to believe that, that we could be capable of doing these sort of negative things. And ultimately, we want to believe that we're in control. And so we say, nah, not, not me. I, I do this differently. I'm better than that. Or I'm in control of, of this situation. I'm not the kind of person that does, that does that. I try my best to avoid being on the wrong side of bad situations. And my efforts are, are usually pretty successful. And so we give ourselves one billion reasons as to why we won't be the statistic or the person on the wrong side of, of misfortune. And so as much as I would have liked to ignore it that day after, in hearing that song, that's what I felt in those song lyrics. Certainly, I'm not Judas, and I'm definitely not worse than Judas. I, I'm better than that. And so looking at this passage today, I wonder if it's what the disciples felt that night just before the Passover meal. I wonder if it's what Peter felt after he found out that it was Judas who was going to betray Jesus. Maybe thinking to himself, wow, for real? I don't think I could ever do anything like betray Jesus. I, I totally didn't see that coming. Maybe Peter, as he continued to think, started to think to himself, but you, but you know, I, I definitely could imagine that. I, I guess I did see him taking some extra coin last week. He did seem pretty mad at that party the other night when, when the woman brought out the expensive ointment for Jesus. And so right now, especially after this devastating news of Judas' betrayal, everybody's getting their loyalty up. All 11 disciples are mentally, if not physically, rallying around Jesus, questioning themselves, assuring themselves, if not Jesus, that they aren't going to be the ones who are going to betray him. And so verses 22 through 25, Jesus breaks the bread. He passes the cup. Judas leaves the room after, shortly after this. And now the thoughts in the disciples' minds, we can imagine that they begin to swarm. Is it I is what the text says. Is it I? Is it, is it me? I know he said it was going to be one of the 12, but it, but it can't be me, right? I, lo I love him, don't I? I don't have anything against him, do I? Again, that's just if you're one of the nine who didn't hear Peter's subtle question to John. And again, what's Peter thinking here? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but if we read this like humans, we, we all know the familiar feelings, right? We all know the familiar feelings. Maybe he's grow, growing angrier at Judas as the, as the time, as the minute goes by. Maybe he's inwardly patting himself on the back because Jesus knows that I would certainly never do anything like that. Maybe the temptation is starting to slowly kick in, luring Peter to trust in the sufficiency of his own devotion and loyalty to Jesus. Maybe he's thinking about all the good times, all the really deep moments, the time where he's on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, especially the time where Jesus commends him for calling him the Christ. Again, everyone's relationship with Jesus is now flashing before their eyes in this moment. Every word, every interaction, every disagreement, every demonstration of loyalty. And they're all thinking, what kind of person would ever abandon? This week at the other end of this sandwich that Mark has put together in these passages. And so far, we've seen Judas's betrayal. We've seen the Passover meal. And this week, we come to another betrayal. This week, we walk right into the middle of the drama. And what we'll do today is we'll, we'll go through this passage once, and then we'll come back and just sit on Jesus' words a little more. And so, so far, we've seen that Judas has left the room, and Jesus and his disciples have just finished the Passover meal. He's spoken to them about his sacrificial death that will usher in the new covenant, and now they all proceed to sing a hymn, most likely the Hallel from Psalms 115 through 118. 
And so now Jesus and the 11 disciples go from this upper room in Jerusalem and they begin to make their way to the Mount of Olives. And as they're making their way through the city, it still swarms with people. The streets are still filled with the noises of Passover pilgrims going to the temple, music playing and the sounds of animals as people begin to prepare their sacrifices for the next day. But for Jesus and the 11, it's, it's a quiet night. It's a sorrowful night. It's probably easy to imagine that they never felt closer during this time, but now with this impending news of betrayal and death, sorrow begins to take over the evening. And so on arriving at the Mount of Olives, the first thing that we'll see here is a disturbing prophecy given, given to them by Jesus. In the midst of all this sorrow and sadness, it now seems as though things are just getting worse. You look at verse 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So where is all this coming from? We know Mark has a, has a way with quickly moving through a narrative, but let's just slow down and process this for a second. First Judas, and now Jesus is saying that all of his disciples are going to betray him. All of them are going to fall away from him. All of them? Is Jesus, is he having trust issues here? Is this coming from him doubting the loyalty of some of his closest friends? And this falling away, what does that even mean? Does it mean that they're all just going to now turn him into the authorities? Does it mean that they're all going to turn their backs on him? Well, no. Jesus isn't having trust issues here. He isn't predicting or making an educated guess about the loyalty of his followers. He isn't even warning them about a potential threat that could cause them to fall away from him. No, what Jesus says here is sure. It's prophecy. It will happen. Well, why? It'll happen because it's God's will that it will happen. The disciples will, as one translation says, become deserters of him. They'll become offended at him on this night. Jesus will become a stumbling block to them, a scandal. And the basis upon which this disturbing prophecy sits is this, for it is written. What will take place on this night will take place because God predetermined it to happen beforehand this way in his written revelation. And so Jesus, he now quotes a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered pointing to the fact that Jesus the shepherd will be killed and consequently his sheep will abandon him. But what he says here isn't final. He continues on stating that, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, while this statement should be one of encouragement and hope, because whatever falling away these disciples would ex will experience won't be final, and whatever peril Jesus faces won't be final, it seems as though all of Jesus' words here just seem to fall on deaf ears. This prophecy, it's, it's disturbing. So now pause for just a second before we, before we move on. What are we supposed to take away from this disturbing prophecy? So maybe, thankfully, Jesus isn't prophesying to us specifically, telling us that we're going to be offended at him in this particular passage, in this particular instance. But the situation is often the same for those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus today. See, in spite of the loyalty that we so frequently pro profess to Jesus, the reality is that we are all only one tough saying, one hard teaching, one disturbing prophecy away from being offended at him. And look, I don't know what that might be for each of us, 
For Judas, it's possible that it was the situation with the woman at the, at the party with the expensive ointment. For these disciples, it'll be when the temple guards violently seize Jesus just minutes after he makes this statement. And listen, I'm not talking about losing your salvation necessarily, but turning away from Jesus in the sense that association with him in certain areas will get us the same treatment that it gets him. And so figuratively speaking, we bolt. We wince at the thought of what being associated with him might cost us. And so a question for us that we can ask ourselves is, in what situation is turning away from Jesus easier than standing with him? Again, another question that we could ask ourselves in this is this. In situations like this, do you trust in your loyalty to Jesus or do you simply trust in Jesus? Today, are you trusting in the fact that because your resume of loyalty to Jesus and your devotion to him doesn't have any warts on it, that you're good? And maybe that sort of aforementioned syndrome kicks in that we talked about, that you would never do anything like abandon Jesus. Or do you approach this sort of situation, these sort of questions with humility? Examining your own heart, probing it because you know who who really is the loyal one in this relationship. You know whose faithfulness is responsible for any loyalty or any faithfulness that you have to God. So in case you're wondering what it looks like to to trust in your own loyalty. In case you're wondering, maybe you're watching this and you're saying, listen, is this me? Am I, am I trusting in my own loyalty, my own devotion to Jesus instead of trusting in him? Well, we have an example here of what that looks like. And again, it's the usual suspect, Peter. And so in reaction to Jesus' disturbing prophecy in verse 29, we now see a stubborn response given by Peter. It says, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter's response here appears to be a reaction to the first part of Jesus' previous statement about everyone falling away. It's almost as as if Peter was in one of those movie scenes, you know, that when the actor receives bad news from someone, that while that person is talking, their words begin to fade out. The silence begins to kick in and the volume of that dramatic music begins to increase. And now Peter, he doesn't hear anything else. All he can hear is that you will all fall away, and that's it. Forget being raised up and going to Galilee, Jesus. I'm not falling away is essentially what he's saying. So this text, it doesn't tell us what Peter was thinking here when he responds to Jesus in this way, but the context might tell us. Remember, Peter knows that Judas is going to betray Jesus. He heard it firsthand from John, and so now it's possible that the it won't happen to me syndrome is beginning to take full effect. Maybe Peter's already concluded why it's Judas that it's going to betray Jesus. Maybe he's also suspected some of the other disciples who might have their own reasons for doing so as well. Sort of looking around the room asking himself, well, I could see that. Maybe, but certainly not me. Maybe he's clearing himself of all possible suspicion within himself. And now that he hears these words from Jesus, he just can't accept them. Look, Jesus, this just this must be a misunderstanding. Look, Lord, you know, you must not know me. I would never do anything like that. That won't happen to me. Even though they all fall away, I won't. I will not. And so it's here that Peter does two things that are tied directly to each other. 
One, he begins to trust in his own loyalty to Jesus. But two, he also begins to elevate his loyalty to Jesus over everybody else's. Look, Jesus, I I can't speak for them, but I'm not like everybody else. I'm different. I'm better than that. Sure, you've been right about everything else all the time, but, but you're not right about this. Not this time. Not me. Listen, on certain individuals in our lives ever doubted our loyalty or our faithfulness to them, we'd be saying the same things as Peter would be saying. In the words of an R&B singer, we'd be saying, listen, I'm not him. We hate to even think of hurting those closest to us. And so for Peter, this is personal. This hurts. But it's here that we see what Peter misses. See, this is bigger than him. It's bigger than the disciples. Once again, Peter is now making this all about him. This has become about his loyalty, his devotion, his faithfulness. What Jesus originally said is all about Jesus. And look, this is what it means to trust in our own loyalty. See, when when it comes to why we believe we should be accepted before God, why we believe we should be associated with him, we may or may not always say it with our mouths, but if we're honest, at times we think it's because of us. It's because we say all the right things, we do all the right things, we have the loyalty together, the devotion, the faithfulness, we stay away from all the bad things. So therefore, we must be insusceptible to temptation or failure. We convince ourselves that certain things, certain sins, and even certain sufferings could never happen to us all on the basis of our faithfulness to Jesus. And look, what what about when it comes to our interactions with others? See, when we take this kind of attitude and trusting in our own loyalty, how often do we question the loyalty of others when we see them fall or fail? And then elevate our own loyalty and our own devotion to God above everyone else's. When someone turns away from the Lord, how quick are we to make suspicions as to why they turned away? And then subtly elevate ourselves, claiming that that could never happen to us. See, Peter's mistake here is that he makes this all about him. His faithfulness, his loyalty. He prefers to place his confidence in his own abilities, in his loyalty, rather than in Jesus' words, even as painful as they are. And so Jesus, seeing that Peter's now making this about himself, he's willing to go along with Peter's claims about, by by countering them specifically. Jesus goes here from making a, a generic prophecy about the eternal plan of God stated in the scriptures pertaining to his death to making a precise prophecy about the way in which Peter's going to fulfill exactly what Jesus has spoken. And so in verse 30, Jesus states, he tells Peter, truly I tell you, this very night... Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Listen, I don't imagine that Jesus responded with the same fervency that Peter originally retorted with. Although he does respond emphatically, truly, I tell you, is what he's saying to Peter. He could have responded like Peter, but when when I read these words, I hear sorrow. You sort of hear that you have no clue tone in Jesus' voice here because he knows exactly how all this is going to play out. And he knows these men better than they know themselves. Because Jesus is all-knowing, what he says here is precise. It's down to the details. You will deny me tonight, Peter, three times before the rooster crows twice. 
Again, this is no prediction. This is no guess. Jesus knows more about the insufficiency of Peter's loyalty than even Peter knows. He's aware of their frailness in this hour, even when they have no concept of it themselves. And so as we've been journeying through Mark, if you know Peter, you know that he's the type of dude that always has to have the last word, especially in this situation. Peter isn't buying it. Jesus' accuracy just pushes him to make an even greater statement about his loyalty to Jesus. And so Peter says vehemently, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Remember, although Mark is writing this down, Peter is most likely telling him how it happened. And here, Peter includes the seriousness, the resolve that he now swears by. Peter believes that he will die with Jesus before he denies him. And in step with Peter, all the disciples begin to say the same thing. They begin to make their own oaths of allegiance to Jesus. But now it's their words that fall on deaf ears. Notice Jesus says nothing further. So before we move on, who are you in this passage? Who are you in this scenario? Are you one of the ten relentlessly analyzing your relationship to Jesus, worried that you haven't done enough to demonstrate your faithfulness to him? Or are you Peter, confidently trusting in your own loyalty to Jesus, separating yourself, even elevating yourself above others? Saying to yourself, listen, I'm not that bad. I would never do anything like that. And so look, while many of us aren't like Judas, looking for an opportunity to betray, betray Jesus, we all find ourselves like the disciples with opportunities to fall away from him, constantly pursuing us, waiting to sift us as wheat and destroy our faith. And so the encouragement today to us is to don't trust in your own loyalty. Don't trust in your own faithfulness to God. Recognize that apart from the preserving and powerful preserving hands of our Lord, our best efforts at loyalty to God, our best efforts are worthless. And so as we proceed, going back to sit on Jesus' words here, Seeing what he means by that, you look at verse 27 and 28. What does he mean when he says here, you will all fall away? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What does he mean here? Why does Jesus even say this kind of thing to the disciples? I mean, what good is it going to do? Well, Jesus informs his disciples of what's coming because he's always done things this way. See, in addition to educating his disciples about correctly interpreting the Old Testament in light of who he is, Jesus has been foretelling his disciples about his sacrificial death and resurrection all the way through his ministry. He's actually predicted it three times before this. So this news here, why Jesus telling them, it isn't given to push them away. It isn't given to crush their spirits. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't given to point them uh, to something else, to turn them away. It's given to point them to something about Jesus and his mission. It's given to point them to Christ in the same way that everything Jesus has done thus far has been for the same reason. Jesus gives them this prophecy to point to himself as God's Messiah. 
If you look at John's account of these events, Jesus tells the disciples about Judas's betrayal beforehand, saying that I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. This prophecy, as devastating and as disturbing as it seems, is actually a grace. It's a comforting promise. It's given to them for their assurance so that they will know that Jesus, in the face of some horrific events that will happen to him, and even in the face of their own denial and failure, Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He's the all-knowing, sovereign son of God who will fulfill the Father's eternal plan of redemption, even in the place of those who will abandon him when it really matters. Jesus points to himself in giving them this disturbing prophecy. It's really a comforting promise. So furthermore, why this prophecy from Zechariah about striking shepherds and scattering sheep? I mean, why this, Jesus? Well, on the surface, we can see how it applies to the situation and that Jesus is going to be killed and his disciples are going to consequently fall away. But, but is there anything else going on in what Zechariah is saying here? Well, let's look at that passage, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, where this prophecy is found in the Old Testament. The Lord is speaking through Zechariah and says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Now notice how this prophecy begins. It's the Lord. The Lord who sends his sword against his shepherd, his associate, or the man who stands next to him, striking him. God's judgment will fall on God's appointed shepherd and consequently his sheep will be scattered. Maybe not now, but perhaps soon this will give the disciples some insight as to what's really going on here just before Jesus' death. Yes, Jesus will be handed over to the Gentiles. Yes, the elders and the chief priests will reject him. Yes, they will have him killed, but that's not the worst part. See, in addition to all that Jesus has told him them about his death, what they'll soon realize is that This is God's judgment. God's wrath will fall on Jesus. Jesus will be crushed, not for his own sin, but for the sin of God's people. And Jesus will be forsaken, not just by Judas, not just by the disciples, but by God. The justice of God will smash the Son of God. But it will also create a new people. You look just a few verses later in Zechariah's prophecy. Just after the shepherd is struck, just after the sheep are scattered, verse 9 says that a third of them will be put into the fire, refined as silver, tested as gold. And then what happens? They will call upon the Lord. Notice that in this passage in Zechariah, this falling away wasn't permanent or final. Even in this passage today, this falling away isn't going to be permanent or final. Rather, it's redemptive. The scattered people of God will return to God. And these disciples will return to Jesus. 
Which is why as this disturbing prophecy initially, as disturbing as this prophecy initially sounds, it's counterbalanced with an equally if not greater promise. What Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look at that promise. And see, that's the part that Peter and the disciples appeared not to hear, but needed to hear. In spite of their falling away, in spite of their disassociating and denying Jesus, in spite of their well-intentioned yet deceitful hearts, Jesus is in control of the situation. They will fall away, but he will be raised up and he will go before them to Galilee. Jesus knew beforehand what they would do, how they would fail him, how fragile their loyalty was. But behold the love of God. He still goes to the cross for them and he victoriously goes before them to Galilee once he's raised from the dead. And their failures can't frustrate that. Their weakness can't thwart that. Their temporary denials can't destroy that. In this statement, Jesus wants them to know that their failures aren't too great for God's grace and his power to redeem them, to keep them. But wait just a minute. This sounds good. This sounds great, right? But how does Jesus know that all is going to be well with the disciples in the end? How can Jesus sound so sorrowful on the one hand and yet confident in making this kind of statement? How does he know that all of the disciples, that all of them won't just fizzle out and be done with him? Sure, we understand that Jesus is omniscient. We understand that he he knows things even before they happen. But is, is there anything else going on here besides Jesus just having a knowledge of the future? Again, I believe that Jesus says this to them in sorrow, but but what takes the sting out of this disturbing prophecy is something else. What makes Jesus' confidence in the disciples returning to him at Galilee is something else. There's more going on here than, than even what Mark tells us. So let's just zoom out for a second. Let's just zoom out to get a bigger picture of what's happening here. Mark gives us the ground-level interaction between Jesus and his disciples that that just looks like a disagreement on the surface. But Jesus has some insight into this situation that they don't have. Luke's account of this event uh, lets us in on what's actually happening on a larger scale. And so in Luke Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Jesus again talking to Peter, he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus' words here to Peter in Luke's gospel tell us that, tells us that there's someone else involved in Peter and the disciples falling away from Jesus. Satan. Now, make no mistake, this isn't the type of situation where Peter or the disciples can say, the devil made me do it. But what we see here is that Satan is actively lurking and even demanding an opportunity to destroy the faith of Peter and the disciples. He would like nothing more than to pressure the disciples into into abandoning Jesus completely forever. And we know that even he's successful for a period of time. But notice that the statement doesn't end there. See, although Satan has destructive plans set in place for the disciples to do them harm, Jesus has plans in place for them as well, to strengthen them. 
See, God will permit Satan to have an opportunity to sift the disciples, but God will not allow this adversary to prevail over them and to destroy their faith. Why? Well, it's not because of their faithfulness to Jesus. It's not because of the disciples' loyalty. It's not because of their devotion. It's not because they'll in their own strength return to Jesus and choose him at the end of the day. It's because of one thing. It's because of Jesus' intercession for them. It's because Jesus has prayed for them. But I have prayed for you. See, the reason that Jesus can know that Satan's demands will not be met and that the faith of the disciples will not be destroyed is because God hears him. God hears the prayers of his beloved, perfectly obedient son, and he has prayed for his disciples that your faith may not fail. The reason that Jesus can sorrowfully yet confidently tell his disciples this disturbing prophecy and this comforting promise about his resurrection is because he's assured that the faith of the disciples will be sustained by the power of God because of his intercession, because he knows God hears him. And Jesus, he goes even further in comforting Peter here, saying, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brother." The mercy of God seen in Jesus here turns the news of scandal into a message of grace. God will turn the flames of Peter's trial into the fires of refinement that will enable him to strengthen the other fallen disciples. And look, the same could be said of us in our moments of denial and failure. While it's certainly true that we could do bad all by ourselves, there's often the presence of that same adversary, Satan, who's constantly looking for an opportunity to destroy us and to shatter our faith in God. And look, I don't claim to have insight as to how or when he approaches, but we can know. We can know for certain that in the moments of temptation or doubt or denial or failure, the power of Christ is greater than the power of Satan. See, when our hope is grounded in the person and work of Jesus, we can know that because of who he is, he will not lose anyone of who the Father has given him. He will not lose any of those who are his, even in severe doubt, even in denial, even in failure, even in temptation. And we can know that we have the resurrected Son of God praying for us and sustaining us, sustaining our faith by his power. So listen today, have, have you failed Jesus? Have you denied him? Have you doubted him? Are you condemning yourself for all the ways that you've messed up, all the ways you've sinned, doubted, and fallen short? Listen, look at this passage. Let this be your hope. Jesus knew beforehand all of what the disciples would do in falling away, and he knows beforehand all of your denials, all of your failures, all of your sin. He's seen when you failed. When you fall in, he knows when you'll fall again. And listen, it doesn't surprise him. Your worst failures and the sin that we work so hard to cover up doesn't shock him because he knows us better than we even know ourselves. And instead of punishing you for your failure, instead of punishing you for your sin, he goes to the cross and he bears the punishment for your failures, for your sin, giving you instead the forgiveness of sins an acceptance before God, and now he goes before you victoriously in his resurrection, 
giving you eternal life, giving you everlasting joy and happiness with God in a place with him forever. He does this in spite of your faithfulness or your lack of it. He does this because he is faithful to you. Listen, do you recognize this today? Do you see the frailty of your own faithfulness? of your own devotion and the proneness of your heart to wander. Can you say with that song that I mentioned earlier, what have we done? Can you say, oh my soul, oh my Jesus, Judas sold you for 30, I'd have done it for less. Oh my soul, oh my Savior, Peter denied you three times, I have denied you more. Because if you can say that, If you can see this in yourself, you can rest assured that even in your weakness, even in your denials, even in your failures, Jesus holds you securely by his power. He intercedes for you. He prays for you. He goes before you victoriously, taking your place, bearing your sin, being buried with him in his death, and then being raised with him in life forever. Listen, as you're at your homes today, when you take a moment to to, to take communion, be reminded of this. As Robert mentioned in last week's sermon, this meal isn't meant to display all the commitment that you can give to Jesus, but it's meant to display the commitment that he shows to you in choosing you, in dying for you, in being resurrected before you in powerfully keeping you and preserving you and your faith forever. Confess your sins to him. Bring your failures to him, your denials, your doubt, your weakness, your failure. And as you take this bread and take the cup, being reminded of his body and his blood, rest assured, take this confidently. And take joy in the fact that God is for you through Jesus. Even in the midst of the darkest and and, and most devoid times where you feel like God has abandoned you because you've somehow abandoned him. Know that God is for you. Let's pray. Lord, again, help us to be reminded constantly of what you've done in your son Jesus. Lord, we confess all the times we've placed our loyalty in, in, in ourselves and placed our, our hope in the devotion that we, we have to you and the faithfulness that we, we can somehow have to you. Forgive us. Forgive us for placing our confidence in that and help us to see your commitment to us. Help us to see that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, forgive us for the many times we've denied you, the many times we've failed you. Forgive us for making so many of the empty promises and the false professions when we've fallen short of our own standards and your standards. Help us to receive the grace that you've given to us. Help us to just put away all all the attempts at trying to secure ourselves through our loyalty and faithfulness to you. Lord, we thank you again for this time of being able to spend hearing your word and spending with our families. In Jesus' name.